Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Politics and Perspective, Episode 7. I'm Taylor Wong, joined as always by Cole Reynolds. And today we have a very special guest, Dr. Leland. Uh, Dr. Leland, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So, Dr. Leland, um, you came to the school a couple of years ago, and maybe some people don't know uh, who you are yet. So if there's um, a quick summary uh, to your life, an elevator pitch to your biography, uh, what would it be? Um, yeah, I, so I've been teaching English at Head Royce. This is my second year doing that. Um, and before that, I was teaching eighth grade at the Bentley School. And I've, I have taught at a lot of different levels. I taught college for a long time. Um, I have been a Latin Boogaloo band leader in New Orleans. Um, and I have been, you know, an, an outdoor educator in the Sierra Mountains. Um, I'm an Oakland native, um, and I actually was a Hedroyce middle schooler, um, back in the olden days. Um, and so I'm glad to be back and I am excited this year to be teaching 11th grade and to get coal at the end of the day, twice a week. I'll take it. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. Um, so, uh, you mentioned that you, um, uh, play music. So uh, take us through your musical journey. Every musician has one. I feel like mine obviously ended when I was 10. But <laughs> um, but where where did um, we can get into your music later? But where where did you um, where did you start as a musician? I started as a musician playing Suzuki violin when I was four or five years old. Um, after I saw the famous violinist Yitzhak Perlman on Sesame Street. Um, and when I was maybe 11 years old, I decided I also wanted to play the saxophone. And after like harassing my parents for about a year, I got a saxophone and some saxophone lessons. Um, and I've, it's been a real big part of my life ever since. That's that's crazy close to um, my musical thing. I was a violin player back in when I lived in Wisconsin, and um, and tried to pick up the sax in sixth grade band. Um, kind of PTSD'd out of that um, after that class. Sorry, Mr. Tower, but um, there's still time. I didn't connect with that class. <laughs> well, we, I guess I guess there is music is still a big part of my family, but. Um, but you, you have a, um, you have a great band right now or, um, called the Moss Woods. Maybe, maybe we'll, uh, put that as intro music. I don't know. Um, but, uh, I've listened to your guys' album. It's on Apple music. Um, I think, which is where I listen and it's, it's, um, it's really, really good. And I really enjoyed it, but and you guys wrote a couple original songs. So how does how does Dr. Leland write music? How what is what is the process to um, take us through your process? Um, that's a really good question. It's been, you know, th that 
most of the originals on that record are mine, um, or all the originals on that, or all the original lyrics and most of the arrangements on that record are mine. Um, I, you know, sometimes I just sort of get a tune caught in my head. Sometimes I get chord, I get like excited about chord changes. Um, I think there was, there is one song on that record where I started with lyrics. Um, but even that, like it took me to having, once I had had mapped out the chords a little better, um, I had a better sense of where that song goes. Um, so as I, I tend to move from musical ideas to lyrical ones rather than the other way around. What, is, what does it look like? So um, as you write it, so I read, I read, I found, um, this is going to sound a little stalkerish, but Google is a powerful thing. So like you're doing your research. Hey, it's my job. It's my That's job. Right. So you have you have an award-winning band back in New Orleans when you taught at Tulane as you know, as a professor called Los Pobuesitos. Um, mm -hmm. And an article on them said that you guys used to just write music around a table, um, just uh, eating and just talking about life. Um, how where how does music intersect? Um, how how does music help you form a better understanding of the world and um, of your of your friends? Um, that's also a really good question. That so, in particular, you know, playing music and and helps you understand the world because it brings you into contact with a lot of people you wouldn't otherwise come into contact with. I think. Um, you know, and that what that felt particularly true in New Orleans. New Orleans is an incredibly segregated city, um, but it's um, and an incredibly segregated music scene. But there is more crossover there than most other places. You know, and in um, deciding I wanted to have a Latin boogaloo band that meant I wanted to learn a lot about where that music came from, you know, and about um, the sort of travel and interplay of um, Black American music and um, music from mostly Cuba and Puerto Rico in the 60s um, and the sort of cross-cultural exchange there. Um, so that's like, you know, it helps you understand the world in that sense, right? That like when you when you learn a piece of music, um, when, and in particular when you learn a piece of music and, and a style of music, right? Um, there's a lot of history and culture that goes along with that. And there, and there are a lot of people that um, it helps if you understand, you know? Um, because, like, because in order to not be just appropriating culture, Right. Um, it's important to treat the tradition and the history and the form with respect. That's, I mean, I, I don't know if I can have anything to add to that. That's, um, that's, that's really, really well said. Um, so yeah, go, go for it, Taylor. Oh, okay. Well, I was just going to say, aside from music, um, Many students may know this, many students may not, um, but obviously you are very expressive on Twitter, um, to say the least. So uh, 
I guess j- just tell us about tell us about that a little bit if you don't mind. No oh, man, you know I um, I started using all of the social media as band promotion stuff, um, and I was kind of doing fine. I was like flying low, minding my own business, um, and then. Um, it's, it, it speaks to the like sad reality of American life that I don't remember which school shooting happened. Um, but there was a school shooting. Um, and then there was all this talk about, um, giving teachers guns to keep in the classroom. Giving teachers guns to keep in the classroom is like one of the worst ideas I've ever heard. Um, and so I tweeted something about it. Um, I, I tweeted, um, hi, I'm a teacher. I don't want a gun. I could use some more dry erase markers. Thanks for your time. And, um, it like, and it got like 400,000 likes or retweets or something like that. It like, and so like all of a sudden I had, you know, I went from having like 50 followers, right. To having like a couple thousand. And like, that just meant there were all these new people to fight with on Twitter, which is basically as far as I can tell what Twitter is for is like for fighting with people. Um, and that's the sort of genesis of that. Um, you know, I have, um, it's mostly like, it is mostly fun. It is mostly, I think, good natured. Um, you know, I try and fight with people at least as much about Warriors basketball as I do about, um, you know, the other less important stuff that goes on in the world. And the Dodgers. One yeah. thing that we can agree on, no matter which where we come from. Right. Um, but yeah, I think I think uh, this. It's what you explained was the. Just we we talked about it a lot in our second episode when we focused on social media, but the um, kind of dual sided nature to it, whereas it's. Um, it's a platform for good ideas, but also um, a petri dish for hate. And um, and clearly, your origin story for Twitter um, encompasses all of that. Uh, uh, quickly before, what do you uh, guys use it for? Do you Taylor use it? Taylor yeah, uses well, Twitter more than me? I'm not a huge social media guy. Well, hmm. Honestly, I, I don't know. I think I use Twitter mainly for expression where I can kind of like speak my mind in in maybe a more expressive way than I'd I'd say to like strangers who I don't really know. So I mean I some like you, I kind of encompass all things. I talk about politics a lot. Um I talk about sports, 49ers, Warriors, Giants, all that kind of stuff. I don't know. Interact interact with some of my friends. A couple of my friends have Twitter. We all use it. Um so yeah, and and also just honestly to see what Trump's has to say because he's one of the politicians that I follow. So, kind of his his buffoonery is entertaining. Um, it makes me laugh sometimes. 
So I'd say that. Um, but Cole, I know Cole and I also run the Heteroys Hawks Eye Twitter. We're like with Coleman, a couple. You of and Chris people. run it. You and Chris. I thought you it. you posted a couple times though. I posted. I posted one, which is uh, about an article. It was the Pittsburgh Post Gazette one, right? Yeah. Yeah, endorsing Trump, which is just unbelievably shocking yeah. to me. But um, but yeah, that's that's your and Taylor's art. Chris and your thing, Taylor. So I'll let you guys have credit for that. Yeah, um, fair enough. But but you talked about Trump, Taylor, and um, obviously Trump is still dominating the news, um, like he will probably for a while. But now um, that the election's over and we kind of have an idea of the makeup of the government going forward, um, what where will, will we, Trump is the election over? Well, here's the thing. We can talk about the Georgia runoffs and, and things like that, and then we can talk about the the, the soft coup that's going on. Um, but say everything goes out as is expected, the Democrats lose in Georgia, and then Trump leaves office. Um, where does Trumpism go now? Does does the coup or does the cult survive without um, Trump? I mean, I. As, yeah, I, like I think I think Trumpism is a lot older than Trump, and I don't think it's going anywhere. You know, I, th- I think like if d- I mean, it sort of depends what you mean by Trumpism, I guess. Right, but like, did Donald Trump invent? I don't know what you know cutting the social safety net no right like what so like what what are the actual components of trumpism right well this blind loyalty or this un inability to think for them like trump people follow trump's word to its letter every tweet every press conference they hang on every word and um so he can tweet out that the election was filled with fraud and millions or thousands of people will show up and will fly to Washington to protest um, that there was election fraud when there's zero evidence. So this kind of blind devotion to a personality, can, can the Republicans recreate that same uh, coalition moving forward? I mean, where else are they going to go? Well, they have to. They have <laughs> you know? to they, yeah, they have to. They have to stay there. But, but is there another person that can command that kind of um, blind allegiance like Donald Trump? I mean, I'm interested to in know what you think. But I, I recognize that, like, you're asking me the question, so I, I'm not. I can't <laughs> yeah. just turn it around on you. I would like to know what you think. So before I ask you what you think. I will say, you know, I, it's not like if you had asked me 10 or 20 or 30 years ago, you know, like at, at any point when Donald Trump was a public figure, hey, could this guy get half of American adults to vote for him? Right? Like I, I would not have believed you, you know? Um, so if like, if what you're saying is like, come on, are, are like, are those people really going to follow Tom Cotton? Tom Cotton's not charismatic. Josh Hawley isn't charismatic. Like, 
I don't know, man. Like, I don't, I don't find Donald Trump particularly charismatic. So I'm not like the best judge of who is going to organize these people. What do you think? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I have to, I have to agree. The base, that base that he's turned out of kind of people farther to the right, anti-establishment is definitely here to stay. I don't think there's any question about that. The que- the question is that what hap- I guess what ha- I'm curious as to what happens in 2024 because I'm just going to assume that Biden's that Biden's won. Like although Trump's kind of contesting it, I'm just going to assume Biden's won. Biden becomes president in four years. Like what happens? I'm I'm just a does Trump want to run again? B, does Trump win the nomination if he runs again? Um, are definitely things that I've thought about a lot. Um, and I'd love to hear your all of your opinions on that. What do you think, Cole? Um, I think, here's the thing. I think that Trump, the whole Trump brand, this whole, um, this whole uh, zeitgeist of the moment for Trump is won't, won't survive without Trump. The the like Taylor was alluding to the ideologies behind those things, the uh, hatred of the left, the um, anti-establishment. Um, those feelings are here to stay, and uh, they're going to need somebody to uh, to control all of these different feelings that are on the right and kind of. Um, rein them in, just like Donald Trump has. So in 2024, if the um, if the Republicans can't uh, find somebody to do that, I think Donald Trump, uh, depending on what he does for the next four years, has a logical path to secure a nomination um, because uh, he's been the best part, the one person in the last decade to kind of control to pull all those feelings um together one thing to add though something he has on his resume now is he's a loser he lost the general election you know he didn't get enough support to win against i mean albeit some a decently strong candidate like who could attract a coalition of voters but he still lost do you think that's something that'll hurt his odds compared to someone who's never maybe who probably hasn't run in a general election before no, he lost. He lost because they stole the election. He lost because of the China <laughs> flu. He lost. You know, he. This was a. He lost because of Hunter Biden's laptop and um, Hugo Chavez. I think he like. There are all kinds of reasons why he lost. It's not on Trump that he lost. I would have to agree wholeheartedly, Dazilian. Um <laughs> that was but, ironic. That like uh, yeah, everything I just said was not the official position of the Head Rice School English Department. All right. Or or of Paul Reynolds <laughs> or of this podcast, hopefully. Um but but yeah, it's 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 hard. It's he needs to turn around because this whole America First brand was a winner's brand. Like he ran, you can look go back and look at what his stuff he said against Hillary, and he was like, Look, I'm a winner. I've won all my life. I've won in business, I've won with the ladies I've won, um, and I know how to win, and he lost. And um, if and if he can't change the narrative about um, him being a loser, then he has no shot. That's why this whole election, um, this whole election fraud thing, is bigger than um, this election. Because if you can construct a narrative that the Democrats 
are just um, pushing forward these socialist ideas and doing whatever it takes to um, get them implemented, then um, then Trumpism will survive. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that's true, but I also think that like you say he, he you, and you're right, he ran as a winner, right? I've succeeded in business. I've succeeded at everything I've ever tried to do, right? The guy went bankrupt owning casinos. I know. It's, <laughs> you know, it's like, so like, it, you, just, he just says it. It doesn't have to be true. Yeah. And that goes <laughs> to the cult, the cult idea That's... of the personal. And is, is some, could anybody say, other than Trump, could people, well, if some, if another candidate was like, all of those things, would people believe him just like they believe Donald Trump? Yeah. And but the, that's the question. Yeah. But the thing with the thing with Trump is, if even if anyone tries to fact check that statement, he just goes and says, "Oh, it's fake news," and his supporters will still believe him. You know, that's the that's, that's the why Trump is problem. so unique. You know, it's the biggest problem that pe- leaders are able to construct this narrative that everybody's against them, and every time they're trying to held accountable for something that they did wrong it's the systems against them netanyahu does it in israel like i can't believe le pen does it in france um to an extent and uh, donald trump is the king of that here in america and we, we have to find some way i don't know how to do it yet but that's we, we have to figure out a solution to that mm-hmm. um yeah, there's definitely definitely a lot to unpack in terms of what's going to happen in the next four years. But focusing more on kind of the uh, focusing more on the present in terms of Joe Biden, um, I guess I'm like I'm curious how you think of Biden's transition, how he's done so far, specifically in his cabinet appointments, because I know recently he appointed Cedric Richmond, the congressman from New Orleans, to a prominent position. I, I don't remember the actual title, but it's something to do with energy and climate. And he's, I believe the fit, he receives like the fifth most money from oil and gas companies. So yeah. What do you think? What do you think of that? I mean, I think, you know, I think that's too bad. And I think it's um, not a surprise, you know, and I, and I think that's going to kind of keep happening. Um. The same as, you know, like there's this talk of him appointing Rahm Emanuel to transportation, right? Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, that's what I think. I, I, I expect that to keep that kind of thing to keep happening. What would you like to see happen with the Democratic Party um, in the next Biden administration? Um, is do you would you like to see a big swing um, towards the progressive side? Or do you think um, uh, sticking to Biden's core message of unity and trying to build coalitions um, in a divided country is the is the right uh, plan for the next four years? I would like to see a big swing toward the progressive side. You know, I, I as far as I'm concerned, I, I think that politics is about policy and policy and politics is about power. You know, and I think that if you have an idea for how to make the world better, right, um, and you won, 
you should try and implement that idea. And if you have the power to do it, you should do it. Um, you know, I, I think that um, for a long time, the Democratic Party has behaved as though the point of politics is to get everyone to be on the same side. And the Republican Party has behaved as though the point of politics is to win and do what you want, right? Um, and from time to time, you know, like reward your friends and punish your enemies. Um, and for that reason, I don't, I, I think it's not surprising which of those two parties tends to accomplish more of its policy goals. I, one, one, um, one caveat of that position though, um, see here's, um, to front load my positions is I'm, I'm support most of the progressive policy positions, but um, not necessarily the implementation of or the vision of the progressive movement itself. So we can get into more of that later. But um, one of the caveats is that is um, how can you avoid these giant pendulum swings from the left and to the right in um, in elections? Um, and we've seen it. If this is not a unique take by any means, you can just look through history and see the the pendulum swings um, throughout American history from one party to the other um, to implement a truly progressive um, system. Uh, you can't have four years of a progressive president only for um, a, rea a reaction um, from the other side four years down the road that wipes out all of that progress. So, um, so is how can how can if the Democratic Party did decide to swing towards the left and those policies, how can it safeguard against um, a Republican president four years down the road, um, wiping out everything uh, that they've done? I mean, I think I think what you just I think what you describe is kind of what already happens with like right with like moderate Democrat strategies, right? Like you see it with Obama passing the Obamacare, and then which is. Oh, by the way, Obamacare was supposed to be a lot more left, and then it got pushed to the center. Um, but then you then you see once Trump takes office, you see the Republicans try to pass the American Health Care Act and get rid of Obamacare. You're still seeing him try to repeal it. So I don't think I don't think that's really I don't think that's really a fault of the progressive movement. And people can't attack progressives for like saying, "Oh, if a progressive pre president happens, that's going to happen," because it's already oh, happening. Oh, I'm I'm just saying I'm just for in terms of uh, building. Um, a more diverse coalition rather than trying to um, immediately implement uh, your vision uh, is um, which right now there's there's an opportunity for both things um, to rebuild come back up from um, the, the country that's been like uh, struck down at the knees uh, with COVID and um, everything that's happened this year there's an opportunity to really implement your vision but also to uh, build a more diverse coalition, um, especially within Sunbelt states, um, and which 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 direction should the Democrats go? And I think well, Biden is going in one direction, and um, maybe not all Democrats like that. Well, I'd love. I mean, obviously, I'd love to see a progressive agenda get carried out, but I think it's wishful thinking. Um, Biden said 
he said, Bernie, I remember he said a quote where he's like, Bernie Sanders isn't president. I am. I beat Bernie Sanders. I think that's kind of a definition of how he's going to go. He's not going to really, I don't think he's going to let the progressives influence him that much, um, which is unfortunate, but hopefully I think, yeah, hopefully, hopefully I, I probably won't be happy with a lot of the stuff he does, but hopefully he'll do enough good in four years so that like our country doesn't go into disaster or whatever. Um, but adding on to it, I think it's going to be a lot harder for him to carry out any reforms if the Georgia Senate races don't go the Democrats way. I think those are, I think people already think they're important, but man, crazy important know, for the next four years. I think the way you keep the pendulum from swinging away from you is you keep doing stuff people want. If you can keep making people's lives better, they'll keep voting for you. Right. It's it, if it's that once you get them to vote for you, you say, well, OK, now I have to do these things that don't make your life better so that you will, so that I can get people who were never going to vote for me anyway to vote for me. Right. Like then then why would I vote for this guy? again? Right. Like if, if you if you can help people get out of debt, if you can get people health care, if you can get people clean water, if you can get people clean air. Right. Then four years down the road, you say, hey, look at all this stuff I did. Vote for me again. Right. This is like. Does not seem to me rocket science. Right. And so at a certain point, you have to ask. Does a high school English teacher actually understand politics better? Than the first woman speaker of the House of Representatives than the first black president? Or are they, do they keep doing these things that they're doing because these are the outcomes they want? I, I don't mean, think I understand this better than, any, than Nancy Pelosi does. Yeah, I. But um, I. I mean, I. I agree with that. <laughs> I mean, I mean, there's nothing. nothing, yeah, nothing but, but um, here's the 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 other part of this is um. I think a lot of moderate Democrats, more moderate than I am, and I'm not even that moderate. It's just um, in terms of policy positions, but. A lot of modern Democrats see um, progressive vote for Howie Hawkins or uh, other progressive candidates in the general election. Um, or t the Tulsi Gabbard message speaks to them, whereas both parties are equally bad. Just tear it down and build something new from the ashes. Um, but what I'm, I think where you lose a lot of people... Uh, or the progressive movement lo loses a lot of people is this um, this notion that uh, they they have they let kind of let the perfect be the enemy of the good in terms of example like they look for a candidate with all of the policy positions um, or only will only support a candidate with all the policy positions um, whether or in in favor of a candidate with only some of them, uh, and we can get into specifics there. But um, but I think the all or nothing radical list approach from the progressive movement um, 
and I'm not, I don't want to paint with broad strokes, but um, especially some people in the progressive movement uh, is, is not practical enough to run a country of 350 million Americans. I don't think you can ride the Tour de France before you, uh, the day after building or buying a bicycle, if you, if you get what I mean. I do. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, I, like I was, I was sort of trying to think about, I don't know, a, a, like a useful analogy for this kind of thing. Here's what I came up with. I'm ready. You ready? Yep. Okay. So like, I like the Warriors, right? They're my team. And it happens that the Warriors like have won these championships recently with like these players who I love to watch, like my favorite players to watch, right? Um, but if the Warriors went out and got mid-90s Shaquille O'Neal or James Harden or somebody like that, and like a player I really don't like, but who's obviously great, right? And one, I would think, cool, that's great. They're my team. They won. I don't really care how they won, right? Because like my attachment to them is tribal, right? It's like nationalistic. It's like blood and soil nationalism, right? Um, and I think there are a lot of people who think about politics the way they think about sports. You know, so like this is this is my team. I just want them to win. I don't really care how they win or what it means that they've won. And I think you'd be better off thinking about like your favorite band, right? The reason you like your favorite band is you like the music they make, right? And if your favorite band put out a record that you didn't like, that you thought sounded bad, you would like not listen to that record, right? And you would make you would be less likely to buy their next record. They used to have these things called records that had music on them, right? You, would like buy, yeah. you had to like yeah. buy music in physical form and take it home and play it on a record player. It didn't all just happen in a doohickey in your pocket, right? It's making um, a comeback. That's how I know about it. <laughs> oh, why not? <laughs> um, right? It's, it's like, and, and eventually, if your favorite band kept making bad records, you would go find other bands to listen to. And here's the thing. For, the, for you two and, you know, the children are our future and stuff like that. If there was nobody making a record you wanted to listen to, well, it would be about time for you to learn some chords, right? And make the record you wanted to hear. So, like, I think that's where we are. <laughs> Definitely. Right. I think that's cool. That's a that is very I think it's a very interesting analogy. I've never really thought about it like that. But I guess let me counter with this: say your favorite say your favorite band puts out an album with like two or three bad songs in it. Do you automatically switch your allegiance and go listen to someone else, or do you keep listening to them? Because I feel like I feel like that's kind of how the left is reacting, especially to things like Bernie when Bernie goes and works with Biden, and people kind of start hating on him for that. That's kind of the analogy I think of. So. That... Yeah, I, th I mean, I think that's like this this further tribalist thing, right? And like, it has been, I mean, I think it's one of the real problems with like electoral politics and, the, and in particular electoral politics in the sort of instant news age or like the, the politician is celebrity age, 
right? Like, again, like this is my guy. That's what people think, right? And the other guy who's not my guy is the bad guy, right? Um, and so like, so yeah, people overreact to Bernie Sanders supporting the Democratic nominee for president, right? Which is like a totally normal thing for somebody to do once they, once he has lost the Democratic nomination for president, right? The, the example, the band example is a really awesome analogy and, uh, I really enjoyed uh, hearing it. I think I think that analogy works from a personal perspective, but not necessarily a. It doesn't necessarily work in terms of a two-party system. Look, I'll be the first to tell you that the two-party system is broken, and the Democratic Party is not this um, all-encompassing, uh, awesome party that they make themselves out to be. You know what I mean? But um, but there is. Yes, maybe you can go and find um, your voice and make um, find make some core or learn some chords and um, make make uh, your own uh, ideas about society. But at some point, this system is the system we have, and at at this moment in time, there's not a lot that we can do to change the system. So maybe um, so that's why I think that we can slowly implement progressive ideas into the democratic party and um, change the democratic party, um, not try to change the system immediately because I don't know if anybody has the power to do that. And we might just be stuck with another Donald Trump if we uh, continuously fight um, the democratic party instead of uh, trying to change it yeah i mean i i I don't think there's there's much of an argument to be made for like it's for abandoning the democratic party right um i do think though that if there's a thing you believe in right like if, if you can if you sort of like can get out of like politics being these this thing that happens once every two or four years right um that like neither of you in fact I don't know, Taylor, are you 18? I could not vote. You couldn't vote. Yeah, right. So like, it's, it's this thing that like excludes you. Right. Um, this thing that happens once every few years and, and excludes you. Right. If you stop thinking of it that way, right. If you, if you start thinking of it as being about policy, right. About like this, the stuff you care about, right. Then you act on that and you don't do it in moderation. Right. Expect the people who disagree with you to moderate you. They'll slow you down. Right. Like expect the people who don't think clean water is important to tell you, hey, you're too enthusiastic about clean water. You know, I I I don't think there's any real danger of like the Democratic Party tomorrow coming out for like redistributing wealth in a way that's like you know off-putting to people who weren't going to be put off by otherwise right but if you believe in redistributing wealth then you know fight for that i think 
yeah, I think that's that's where I I think yeah, I I completely believe in that. I just um I don't think that voting for Howie Hawkins is the way to make that work. And that's and I gave I gave progressive the progressive movement a lot of credit for Joe Biden's win um in 2020 after kind of spending four years trashing them in for Donald Trump's win in 2016 because um, a lot of people felt off put by both parties and decided to vote Jill Stein or another way or Gary Johnson and uh, and we got left with a lot Donald of people Trump. who decided to vote for Donald Trump though don't let them off the that, hook. It's like if, 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 if yeah. like, you know, oh, if I'm it never, is your I'm position never... that Donald Trump is something to be, that we should blame people for, we should blame people for voting for Donald Trump. Oh, of and course, of course. we should blame the system that got, that made him president, even though he didn't get as many votes. Oh, yeah, of course. And I'm never I, Trump supporters off the hook. Yeah. God, that's. And that, I think that, you have to blame yeah. the establishment, too, because. They took a lot of people for granted in 2016. I mean, Hillary didn't visit a lot of the Rust Belt states. Like, I think progressives get a bad rap for that election. I don't think, and I don't think they deserve the blame because Hillary Clinton has continued even to 2020. She's still blaming Bernie Sanders. She's still so mad at Bernie Sanders for losing, but it's her fault. She's the candidate. She has to inspire people to vote, and she didn't do that. So oh, I God. think the only Hillary was terrible. That. Hillary was really, really bad. But um, and even seventh grade me could figure that out but um <laughs> but but I, I don't think progressives deserve the blame i think they deserve some blame in 2016 and i don't and i think they and i think people realize that and that's why 2020 happened differently so um but moving forward we're we started this off with where does the democratic party go from now or go now you see republican the Republican coalition have a lot of one party or one issue voters, whether it's um, on taxes, on abortion, on school choice. Um, they can keep their coalition together by just um, by because they have so many one issue voters. Uh, but the Democrats have a lot of younger people who are more in tune with a broad range of issues and they care about more issues. So it's harder to run on a single idea. But if we were going to have a unifying idea for the Democratic Party to solidify the coalition, what would it be, in your opinion, Dr. Lewin? Um, there's a lot in that question. The, the simple answer to the question at the very end is, it is bonkers to me that in the midst of a global pandemic, healthcare was not the only issue. I, I do not get it. Again, I, you have to ask, do these people not know as much about politics as a high school English teacher, right? Um, you know, it's, so the question about healthcare, right? If, if you say like healthcare is the most important issue is really a question about like resources you know, and who gets what, you know? What's the longer I think... answer? <laughs> oh, God. What's the longer answer? The, I mean, I, I guess that the longer answer is 
when you ask where the Democratic Party goes from here, right? Um, you have to ask at like at what level are we talking about the Democratic Party, right? Because like where the Democratic Party goes from here is like, well, 78-year-old Joe Biden is president, right? And 82-year-olds and like, right? like the entire Democratic Party leadership is almost as old as I am, right? Um, and it's not clear what their policy goals are, <laughs> to me anyway, right? Um, there are, there's this group of new young Congress people um, who seem to be at odds with party leadership, right? But like, um, when you, I guess it's, it's a question about like what level of the Democratic Party you're talking about. You know, on a national level, where they go from here is they run for Obama's third term over and over and over again. Um, on a local level, it could be something different from that. No, I'd, I'd have to agree. And I think I think your idea, your, your what you said about how Biden didn't really run on a platform, I think that's a big reason why the House and the Senate races a lot of the time didn't go the way he wanted to because look, look, he, I mean, he kind of, to an extent, he kind of ran like, oh, I'm nice, I'm respectful. Donald Trump's a monster. I'm going to restore dignity to the White House, which is, I guess, it won him the election, sure. But for those down ballot, those down ballot races weren't really successful. Um, and Cole and I have talked about this earlier. I think a progressive, more progressive candidate would have driven out a lot more support for those down ballot races, and probably we would have done better in Congress. Um, but that, that's a whole nother debate. That's just yeah, kind that, of my That's going to be another episode. Would Bernie have won the election? Um, but I, as much as I've said that the progressives need to stop fighting the Democratic establishment, I also think the Democratic establishment needs to stop fighting the progressive movement and see that, look, if you just look, it's an objective thing that the Democratic Party has become more and more progressive over the last 10 years. And uh, it's it's incumbent upon Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer to stop fighting the the tide, I guess, of the public. You can look at Obama's platform when the Democratic Party didn't even endorse gay marriage, and now they have bills to have transgender or gender-neutral bathrooms. Um, as just one example of how uh, the Democratic Party is embracing more and more progressive positions. So I think I think they need. I don't know what, so that's why I think the environment is the issue that they can meet in the middle on, because um, for a lot of, uh, for a lot of moderate Republicans, tax raises aren't very palatable, but business regulation is, which is a big part of environment concerns. And obviously on the progressive side, um, that's an issue that we have to tackle immediately and is one of those issues that I think is thing that we need radical change right now and um whereas i think for other ones you might have to uh kind of implement them from the ground up so that's that's my uh big issue that the democrats have to run on in the near future in order to hold their coalition together 
and that's probably why that's probably why the Richmond appointment upset it's upset so many people too, um, especially kind of especially like this. I'm just gonna single out the Sunrise Movement in particular, who's kind of an advocate for climate reform and was like, "Let's listen, Biden. We'll support you, but once you get in office, you need to pro- pass this progressive legislation. Like, it's very important." And I don't know, he hasn't really. I don't know. It doesn't seem like he's planning on fulfilling that anytime soon, um, which I think will upset a lot of people, unfortunately. We talked about. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, like, if you look at the, at that Cedric Richmond, right, and and you take Sunrise, right, if you're again, like, we don't think about this as like whose team is going to win or who or who are the good guys and who are the bad guys, right? You think about like, here's the thing I care about. Right. And I'm going to fight for it. Right. And so then it's not a matter of like, well, don't fight with them, fight with them. Like, no, I, I'm fighting with the other side. Right. I'm, I'm fighting for like I'm fighting for the thing I care about. And here's somebody who disagrees with me. Right. And here's somebody who disagrees with me, but whose party needs my vote. Right. So here's somebody who's persuadable, theoretically. Right. As opposed to like, here's somebody who disagrees with me and thinks I'm a dirty hippie from California and like doesn't care what I think anyway, right? Like, of course, I'm going to take my issue to somebody who I have some something in common with, something somebody who might need my vote, right? Of course. Yeah. I agree. And we talked a lot of, we just talked about the policy positions that could, that Democrats could run on next presidential election or in the future. Who, I, I would like to ask all of our guests this, who is the president, who is the person that, who is the next uh, star of the Democratic Party that could hold this coalition together? Who is that? You got me. <laughs> I mean, I mean, that's basically the response. <laughs> Standard response there. No, I mean, I can tell you who it's not. That's probably easier. Um, <laughs> I don't. I, 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 yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know who the next star is. I think we'll probably find out in the next four years. But I can tell you, I don't think. I don't think it's Biden for one. I don't think it's. I don't think it can be Kamala. And from the left, I don't think it can be AOC yet. I don't think. I don't, I don't think, think 2024 is AOC's year. Down the line, I think she'll have a lot more influence, but no. AOC, I don't think AOC 2024 I think is something that's feasible. The GOP kind of crushed AOC from the very beginning. Um, I think I think they saw how dangerous she was to their ideology and how um, good of a leader she is, and they've just been launching just a assault on her... Um, on everything she does, uh, yeah, but just, it, for, I mean, she's she's the emperor, right? It just it just makes her stronger, right? Like every, everything so. they do just makes her stronger. Hopefully, I hope because I like AOC, but um, but we'll but hopefully um, we can find that person. Does can Gavin Newsom find that person? He has an appointment to make. Oh, it's looking okay. like. Who would you like to see uh, appoint a rising star or somebody that can um, kind of fill the stopgap uh, to the next person? Who would I like to see him appoint to Harris's seat? Yeah. Uh, Barbara Lee. 
Taylor thought you might say that. <laughs> I thought you might say that. I, I mean, I think I think Barbara Lee as well. I'm just going to preempt Cole. I know Cole is kind of for a rising star appointment, but I think, Bar- I think Barbara Lee is a good appointment. One, because I think you have to appoint a black woman to the seat since Kamala Harris was the only black woman um, in the Senate at the time. I think you need to appoint someone to that seat. Um, more, I, I know that's probably going to upset. Like the, the thing is, Gavin Newsom's kind of in a lose-lose situation here. Whoever he appoints, he's going to receive kind of he's going to receive um, backlash from one one major group in California. Um, so, but I, I think it should be Barbara Lee. One, obviously, she aligns with my ideology a lot, and two, I think yeah, I think she'll be good for the next two years, and then in 2022, people can go to the polls and pick whoever they want. I mean, I think you know, I think the only the only argument against it is for, that I think is interesting um, is that our that California's leadership is all from Northern California, you know, and and that maybe we should send send, send somebody from Southern California. I can't believe I'm saying this. Send somebody from Southern <laughs> California to the Senate, you know, um, that you know, and and so. That's an art. That's an argument against Barbara Lee, but I don't think it's a particularly good one. Quickly about California, um, we saw a lot of progressive propositions not pass in California. Uh, wait, 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 Cole, Cole, I got to interrupt. Well, wait, I didn't hear who you who your choice was before you move on. I don't know. I haven't. I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about it, to be honest. Um, I, I, it's right. I, you're right that I would like to see. A younger person, a more of a person that could carry the Democratic um, Party forward in a more progressive fashion for years to come. Uh, but I'm not quite sure sold on who that person is yet, uh, and I'll have to do some more reading about uh, about all the candidates. But um, in terms of the propositions, uh, Dr. Leon, we saw a lot of progressive propositions not passed. Prop 22 with uh, Uber and Lyft, um, the affirmative action proposition, I think it's Prop 16, 16. Uh, yeah, not pass. Uh, what is What does that say about the state of progressivism in California and by extension, the United States? Well, what's your guys' understanding of the, of the ballot initiative process? Um, I think, I think we're going towards money and politics. I think, I think, um, that's, uh, that's the natural reaction to the ballot, um, process. Uh, and I think that's where, that's where this discussion is heading towards, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it seems like, yeah, it's like, like what Cole says, it seems like when you have a pro, when you have a proposition, I, I'm just going to use the Uber one as an example. It seems like on one side, there's usually a lot of like grassroots movement, union support. And then on the other side, it's just corporations pouring tons of money into it, getting TV ads up, things like that. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's, how it, that's how the process kind of seems to me. And usually the corporations win, unfortunately, um, which was the case with 22. Yeah, I mean, it's the, the average cost of getting your proposition on the ballot in California I think in the la- in 2018 was almost three million dollars. 
right? And like ju just like the the campaign to get the thing on the ballot, right? Let alone the TV ads and the mailings and whatever, whatever, right? Um, and then, of course, what they mean is that the legislature doesn't do its job, right? Like I, there was a ballot measure about about kidney treatments, about dialysis. Yep. Right? Which, like, what? Why am I voting on that? I'm, like, I'm not. That's not the kind of doctor I am. <laughs> you know, Mr. Like, Schneider you know? said the same thing too. <laughs> <laughs> like what? But so, like, yeah, of course, Mr. Schneider said the same thing because he's very smart, and also because that was an egregious one. Yeah. It was. Right. Like, we obviously shouldn't be voting on who gets what kind of dialysis where or whatever it was we were voting on there this is the second time we voted on it too or not <laughs> me but second time the california voted right. on it. right like we obviously shouldn't be voting on that that's obviously something our legislature should deal with for us right <laughs> you know yeah. but but like as as far as as far as it goes like whatever mr schneider said that was that was the way he should have voted on it i'm sure um but that's broadly true of most of this stuff. We shouldn't be voting on who gets called an employee. Like that's, our lawmakers are supposed to do that. <laughs> right? That, that, that's what they're called. They're lawmakers. They should go make laws. Right? Not wait for me to like, vote based on whatever was on like in the commercials that I didn't get around to skipping while I was watching the World Series, right? Like Yeah. This is not a good way to govern. Couldn't agree more. And uh yeah, I mean it's it feels like I feels like it's easy to be cynical about in the entire um entire government you know i mean it's it's you look at what they've been able to accomplish and it's like i think we accomplished more in our trump supporter episode of this podcast than the senate can you know what i mean um <laughs> <laughs> probably true yeah and obviously i have a good view of that since we did get him to endorse biden care but um but um but it seems it seems like politics is just unnecessarily complicated and uh and is and the frustrating thing i think we can all agree is that um we're kind of stuck with this two-party system the winner take all electoral college all of these minority control um features of our government that um is really just blocking any uh, type of change that that could be coming. I mean, yeah, sure. You say that, and then you like you convinced this. It was a it was a another high school student. Yeah, it was yeah. junior also. Another high school junior, right? So, like, each one teach one. You know, hey. like it's easy to be cynical about it. You're right. And it's and it's easy to make jokes about it. And it's easy to complain about it, and it's kind of fun. Oh yeah, 
Yeah. We do a lot <laughs> right. of that on this podcast. That's Twitter. That's Twitter for you. Right. It's like it's easy. It's easy to be cynical. It's kind of fun. It's it's like funny. You can like, you know, like strangers will like like your tweet if you're funny enough and like whatever. And then like you can actually go out and convince people. You can go out like if you can go if you believe in a thing and you and you have an argument for the thing. You go out and make the argument. You might win people over. Like if you win enough people over, like eventually, something good might happen, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, that's what. That's why I try not to fall into this. Um, even though I endorse progressive ideas, I try not to fall into um, one pitfall a specific pitfall of part of the progressive movement which is the overall cynicism of everything and whereas i where some people believe that we need to tear everything down and build it uh back up from from the bottom from the ashes i think i think there is something to say that uh we we can we can make the democratic party have a 15 dollars minimum wage or that we can um, have climate restrict or have um, uh, help help our planet not change. I can't even speak. Right yeah. Now. Oh but yeah, Green New Deal. Have have um, have environmental protections uh, and have all these things. I'm confident that eventually um, the Democratic Party is it's already trending in that direction. And eventually, we'll get there. We I don't think that we need radical change. Well, yeah, especially, I mean, as as Gen Z reaches, starts to reach voting age, I mean, we're very progressive. Um, I think you'll start to see a lot of that change. But like what do, what Dr. Lewin said, again, if you're passionate about an issue, just, I mean, go out and do something about it. What's the worst thing that can happen? People say no, so what? You didn't, you're not anywhere lower, you're not anywhere worse off than you were before, right? But like there's, I feel like there's a lot of, a lot of pros that could happen. So, when, you know, you never know unless you try. Yeah, and you know, like, I, radicalism isn't cynical. Radicalism is the most hopeful thing there is. Well, well, right? well the cynical radicals, that's a thing. That's, that's a thing. And I try to have radical ideas, um, but not necessarily try to be cynical about everything. But I feel like, I feel like radicalism is kind of the product of, well, maybe not radical, radicalism is almost the product of that cynicism. Like, you're frustrated about how government's doing. Why don't you try to improve it? You know, and I think that's the hope. I think yeah, that's the right. idea of hope. Like, you hope that everyone can get healthcare someday. I don't know. You're mad that people can't pass healthcare legislation, so you're kind of hopeful that one day it'll be universal. I don't know. I just think it's as silly as it's is demoralizing as it sounds. Um, sometimes you have to. Uh, try to make those things happen within the system instead of trying to um, exist outside of it, and um, and that doesn't that doesn't sound very appealing or very revolutionary or um, very exciting. But I think that's the reality of um, a, a democracy with 350 million different different opinions. Yeah, I mean, the, the, and theoretically speaking, the nice thing about that winner-take-all system, right, is that you don't actually have to like get parliament to agree. To agree, 
right? You can win and do what you want. First, you got to win, right? But once you win, you can do what you want. Yeah, and it's... So the question I, is what you want. And the question is, can you win? And the question is, can you win? Yep. And I think... For me, the question is, can you win comes before, uh, can you do what you want? Sometimes what you do, what you want to do is how you win. Yeah. We're so far in the abstract right now. But, um, <laughs> yeah, we don't. Really... <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's, it's. Well, we're not really quite far in the abstract, right? Like if, if what you want is clean air, clean energy, right? Well, make the case for it, right? And that, like, you know, in a perfect world, that's winning, right? That should be a winning case. Everybody should want that, right? Unfortunately, um, they don't in this world, but. Right? Like, it, I mean, there's, there's. And that, but then you got to do it, right? Or why should I vote for you again? I think, I think, I think my opinion is there's a way to make all these happen, um, which is changing the current iteration of the Democratic Party, not necessarily abandoning it, um, like you said, uh, but, um, but unfortunately, the, the Democratic establishment is getting older and older and is probably going to get phased out sooner, but, um, but the... I, I, I think the Democratic Party, for all of its flaws, is so much better than the Republican Party. And I think that uh, everybody, no matter what they believe on the left, should help the Democratic Party stay in power and then um, try to change the attitudes of the establishment um, to a more progressive. Well, then, well, let me ask you this, Cole, I guess. How do you feel about how do you feel about progressive candidates like AOC primarying establishment figures? Because that's I mean that's kind of what you talked about like making change within the system. You're running as a Democrat, right? But you're trying to oh yeah have your own voice heard in those politics. So oh, yeah, do you think but, that's something that's justified? But I I think I think yes I think that's that's justified. That's partly part of changing the Democratic Party. I think if AOC had lost the primary, right? And that there was still a democratic establishment figure up for election, they people shouldn't have just been like, "Oh, AOC isn't there. We should vote for whoever the hell the other the Republican nominee was." I think um, even even if it's not perfect, there is um, the Democratic Party is trending in the right direction, and everybody who believes in left leftier ideas has. Um, has a has an obligation to help uh, the Democratic Party implement their ideas because the alternative is Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, just as a te just as a testament to how far we've come, I don't know if anyone's familiar with Mike Gravel, who I I mean I follow the Gravel Institute on Twitter. I'm sure you know, but like in 2008, he ran for president, and he was kind of echoing these same progressive progressive ideas. And I've watched his videos. He basically got laughed off stage by Obama and Biden. And now 
And now look how far we've come to what the party stands for. I think that's only 12 years we made such a big shift. Hopefully in 12 more, um, it'll be even bigger. Yeah, Biden. Biden is a moderate person, but he's running on a progressive platform or a more progressive platform than the Democrat than any Democratic nominee in the past. So I think I think there is something to say for sticking with the Democratic Party and trying to change it like um, AOC did or uh, those candidates build changing it from the ground up, not from the top down. Right. That's, I mean, I think that's a version of like going and getting your own guitar and learning to play. Right. Yeah. Learning to ride the bike before riding the Tour de France. Yeah. Is uh, going back to my. Well, whatever. And, and like trying to get on, get on like a, get a support team to ride the Tour de France and, and all the rest of it. Right. Rather than yeah. just like learn to ride your bike and then go try and compete. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I don't know if anybody else has anything. I think we've we've covered a lot of ground. I think we've, I, yeah, I think we've yeah. solved it. Exactly. We've we've done it. We've done it, guys. <laughs> yeah. Uh, politics. In perspective. Exactly. <laughs> politics. Nancy Pelosi. Listen to listen to politics in perspective. Um, as always. Well, yeah. You, while you're at your your nearest your salon, you can listen. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Or Gavin Newsom, play it yeah, down his laundry. <laughs> we give it a listen on the drive up to Napa and back. Mm-hmm, yep. mm-hmm. Uh, but but, uh, but if you've made it this far, um, that's incredible. I don't know how you've stuck around for an hour and 10 minutes. Um, but uh, if you have, you're, you're awesome. And um, Politics in Perspective airs every Monday. Make sure you listen on Spotify, um, Anchor. Uh, make sure you check out Xboz's other content. And um, thank you, Dr. Whelan, for an awesome, awesome discussion. <laughs>